I appreciated the last couple of Sundays uh, having the sermons covered for me. Um, I had a lot of writing to get done. I had this big deadline and wanted to make sure I got uh, big tasks off of my desk, so I appreciate uh, the flexibility with that. And uh, Mark, thanks for holding down the fort uh, last week. Um, As we return to the Gospel of Mark, we're right about at the halfway mark in in that gospel's two-part series. He basically has two acts, Act 1 and Act 2. In Act 1, Jesus is kind of evading uh, enemies. He's telling people, be quiet. He's avoiding the cross. And then in Act 2, he kind of turns around and he, he goes straight for it. He goes straight, starts moving straight toward Jerusalem and straight toward what he's come for. His teaching is pretty much over and he's going to head toward the cross. So we're in the last phase of Act 2 this week. As we think about what Mark is emphasizing in this passage, I want to ask you if you have, and you must, if you have people in your life that have been exposed to the gospel, they understand the gospel, they probably could even explain it. If you quiz them, on just the basics of Christianity, they could pass it. But they, they just don't believe it. Have you ever looked someone in the eyes, and while they're weeping, they confess to you that they know Jesus is the answer. And then when you ask them, would you follow him? Could we pray right now? Could I, could I pray with you for you to... Place your faith in Jesus Christ right now. And then through the tears, have them just tell you, no. No, I don't want it. I have. Those of you who are in here that are Christian, you have parents or you have siblings or you have children or you have neighbors or co-workers, best friends that have been exposed to as much truth as you have, they just, they just don't see it. What is it going to take for someone who doesn't understand for it to finally click? What do we pin our hopes to? Uh, do we hope that a special evangelist comes to town? If they just hear that evangelist, if I can just get them to that conference or that stadium, if they would just listen to this CD or MP3 or if they would just read this book, they would just read this track, this verse. If I would just knew apologetics a little bit better, maybe I could answer their questions. And I don't know how to answer their questions, and so maybe I need to study up. What are we pinning our hopes to? What I want to tell you is those things are not meaningless. Sermons and conferences and retreats and, and Bible, obviously Bible verses, books, Those things aren't meaningless. I'm giving books away every month up here, right? Those things aren't meaningless. Apologetics is great. But we can't pin our hopes to those things. There's one factor that really matters. And we're going to see that in Mark chapter 8. If you need a Bible, lift your hand up. We'll bring a Bible to you. If you don't own a Bible, please let us know. Anyone wearing a green lanyard or anyone that you've seen up here this morning. And we want to change that fact for you, send you home with a copy of God's Word. And Mark chapter 8, 
Here's what, here's what we're going to see. We're going to start by seeing in this chapter a demonstration that how do you miss Jesus if you witness this? How, if you sat here and witnessed what these people are about to witness, how in the world could you miss Jesus? And that's what some of you may be asking about your cousin, your aunt, your mom, your dad, your son, your daughter, whoever that person is in your life that you, you're, you're flabbergasted that they still can't see that Jesus is the answer that they need. Well, this will flabbergast you. I think it's right at the top of chapter 8 and verse 1. In those days, when again a crowd, a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. Have you ever not eaten for three days? In our culture, I'm looking at the clock like, and not for your sake, I'm hungry. And I'm like, when is my own sermon going to be over? Three days they're still listening to Jesus and they haven't eaten. He knows they have long journeys to go home. Verse 4, and his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? There's no Panera. There's no bakery. There's no kitchens. Verse 5, and he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and having given thanks... He broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. Oh, and by the way, they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 People. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Now if you're reading that, and you were here a few weeks ago, or you've ever read the Gospel of Mark before, you're thinking, that sounds really familiar. If this was a TV show, and the episode opened like this, you'd go, wait a minute, pause, we saw this episode already. We need to go back. You'd be very confused. Didn't he already have a crowd? Didn't we already ask the question, how are we going to feed these people? There's no place to eat. There's no food anywhere. And then didn't Jesus already ask, well, what do we have? And didn't they already have just a few small loaves and a few pieces of fish? And didn't Jesus already just start breaking it? And he wasn't like a scale for that person, an eyeball of the fish for that person. We'll give this person the tip of the fin. They were satisfied, like they're full. And after being full, there's baskets full of leftovers. We leave restaurants with a couple styrofoam boxes of leftovers. These are baskets. The disciples ask, how are we going to do this? And he prays and he breaks it and he keeps breaking it until everyone is completely satisfied, thousands of people. Yeah, was in my Bible, it's one page prior 
when Jesus feeds the 5,000 men plus their wives and kids. Why is Mark putting this here again? Well, of course, some people that want to uh, proclaim that the Bible is messed up, that the Bible has mistakes, they say, you know, Mark, oops, <laughs> he pasted it two chapters ago and then he pasted it again here and he forgot to make the details match. Uh, well, if the details matched, he wouldn't need to paste it again. This is another occurrence. Lots of similarities, but there's a lot of little differences. The number of people are different. Uh, it was 5,000 men alone, so you're probably up to at least ten to 15,000 people in the first instance. This time it's 4,000 total. So it's a smaller crowd, but it's not a small crowd. Last time Mark described, they sat on the grass. This is a different season. It doesn't describe any grass. The number of loaves are different. The number of fish are different. The last time it was out of this kid's lunch pail. This time it's just what they had with them. Last time it was 12 baskets left over. This time it's seven baskets left over. Last time the word for basket in the Greek is basically a lunch pail. This time the word in the Greek is kofinos, from which we get coffin. You could fit a body in this thing. So think of a laundry basket or bigger. Seven of those left over. So there's a, enough differences to see this is not the same thing. And then in a little bit, we'll see Jesus refer to both events as separate events. So this is not the same event, and Mark is just telling it again and changing the details, or he forgot the details. This is a different event. Why is it so similar? It's similar because Jesus is still trying to teach the same point that we missed the first time. Because they didn't get it. And one of the clues that you know the disciples still didn't get it is that they literally asked Jesus, huh, what should we do? Are you serious? Are you serious? If you're driving in the car, I'm speaking, let's say the guys in the room, right? You're driving, boom, there's a flat tire. You pull over, your family's freaking out. What do we do? What do we do? We don't have AAA. We don't know how to, what do we do with this tire? How are we going to get to where we're going? You go, relax. I got this. You get out, you roll up your sleeves, you jack up the car, take the wheel off, put the spare on, put the wheel back, put the car back down. You get back in and they go, wow, that was fast. Very impressive, honey. You go, thanks. And you get to where you're going. One week later, it happens again. <laughs> tire blows. You pull over, and they start freaking out again. What do we do? We don't have AAA. We don't know who to call. Maybe we can call cousin so-and-so. I know they're really good at cars. What are you, you going to say? Are you serious? Didn't I change the tire last time? This, this is what's happening here, but on a grander scale. How can you possibly, maybe you can possibly forget you were on your phone, you were so weirded out, you were so weird about going to the thing, you forgot that your husband was able to change the tire. How can you possibly forget a scene where Jesus takes a few loaves and a few fish and feeds thousands of people? It was like a week ago. The same episode happens again. Jesus uses it to teach the same thing Again, he's the source of satisfaction for people, but they miss it. His own disciples miss it. And this isn't just for the sake of the crowds, it's for the sake of the disciples. They're not grasping what Jesus is about. 
You might be thinking, but this person that I'm thinking goes to church all the time and they listen to sermon after sermon after sermon. Maybe God has come through for them in their lives in big ways. Maybe they even recognize that, wow, I know I haven't, I'm not a real, I don't follow Christ and everything, but I even I have to admit that was a God thing. That was amazing. God must have gotten me out of that. And you go, yeah, see? And they go, uh, no, they don't see. It doesn't matter how many times it happens in their lives or how many church services they go to, how many sermons clearly present the gospel, it just keeps bouncing off. Well, that's the disciples, not the crowds. The crowds weren't the ones that were there last time. Last time it was a Jewish crowd, this time it's a Gentile crowd. The audience that's the same are the 12 that are with Jesus still going, huh, what should we do here? Hmm. Now Jesus, uh, Mark focuses on a different audience who also doesn't see it. These people also don't get it. And it's real quick in verses 11 to 13. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. So here's another group that doesn't see it in the things that Jesus does. They don't see it in the things that Jesus uh, says. And so they come to him, and they ask Jesus for a sign from heaven. Now, this is Mark chapter 8, not Mark chapter 1. What has Jesus done already? He's, he's reversed leprosy on the spot. The dude with the crippled hand, uncrippled. The guy that couldn't walk, he's walking around. After his friends dropped him through the thatch work in the roof. The little girl that was dead. She's alive. This dead girl is alive. A few pieces of bread, multiplied it, thousands, full. They're like, oh man, that was good. Jesus could really break him a loaf. Like he's multiplying fish that prior to him breaking it didn't exist. And then he did it again in Gentile territory. And the Pharisees come and go, you know what, you know, you know what we want? A sign. <laughs> Show it to us. Show us you are who you say you are. Again, the natural response is, are you serious? What, what do you want me to do? Now, scholars will tell you, uh, look, in the Old Testament, you were supposed to ask for a sign. Uh, that's how a prophet would prove that they were a true prophet. They would proclaim something and, and then something in the future, and then that future thing would actually happen, and then you say, oh, okay, that's actually someone. Or perhaps they're looking for something that is a repeat of something they've seen in the Old Testament, one of the plagues from Moses, or the fire that comes down from heaven that we saw with Elijah, something like that. They do say they want a sign from heaven, something heavenly. Some scholars say maybe they wanted something apocalyptic, like the sky split open and a big voice of God, or... Jesus grows to be 30 feet tall and he just goes, I'm the judge, or you know, something like that. We're not sure exactly what they want, but it's hard not to see the irony here. Jesus has done some big things and they come up to him 
How about a sign? This is what you call impossible. Impossible people. Impossible to please. They want incontrovertible evidence. What, are, what other evidence can they have? If someone's dead, he gives them life back. If someone's crippled, he uncripples them. If someone has a demon, he casts it out. How about thousands of demons? How about a legion of demons? One word. They're begging. They're begging Jesus. How about water? Walks on top of it. How about a storm? He says, shh. I mean, a sign? So what does Jesus do? Option A, play their game. Option B, walk away. He chooses option B because playing the game is impossible. What's he going to do? They say, oh, we've seen you juggle. How about juggle axes? <laughs> How about juggle torches? How about axes that are on fire? How about axes that are on fire while we throw stuff at you? It's never going to end. All they're going to want is Jesus to continue to pull rabbits out of hats forever. Because they're not being inquisitive. They're being vindictive. They're coming to Jesus not to see, man, is this him? Is this the one we've been expecting? Is this the Messiah, the Christ that's been promised in the Old Testament now happening in front of our eyes? Is this it? That's not what they're thinking. They're thinking, this definitely isn't it. I don't want any part of Jesus. And let's show in front of everybody that he can't perform what we ask him to perform. How about a sign? They already have made their decision. So Jesus isn't going to play the game. Now, this is the kind of trap some of us feel like we're in with our loved ones. If we, if we just get them to church one more time, if they just see one more thing, if God, you would just break through in their life, show them one more time, do something miraculous for them. If Jesus were right here in front of you and you asked them, would you please show yourself one more time to my friend, he might choose option B and tell you, your friend doesn't want it. It doesn't matter what I do for them. I can pay off all their debt. I can fix their marriage. I can make their kids better. They're always going to write it off as something else. They're always going to find something else that is bothersome and say, well, fix that, and then I'll come. And then I fix that, and then they'll say, well, no, no, fix this other thing. Wait, you didn't fix it quite up to where I wanted it. I wanted it here. You put it here. And he puts it here, and then they say, no, no, actually, my bad. I meant there. They're just going to want God to continue juggle, do juggling acts for them because they're not serious about following God. They don't want to follow God. It's not about evidence. It's about repentance and belief. So we see this in the disciples implicitly. We see it with the Pharisees explicitly. They're just out, outright demanding a sign, and Jesus says, you're not going to get a sign. Then we return to the theme of bread in verse 14. And this is how you know that this whole section belongs together because Mark is still talking about bread. And this is how you know he didn't move on from his point when he brought up the Pharisees. He's still talking about what does this mean that he broke all this bread in front of the people on the hillside. Verse 14, now the disciples, presumably it's the disciples, they had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. Now this is, you know, this is an age where they don't have Gatorade, power bars, you know, backpack, camel, little tube, drink it. They don't have that stuff. You forget to bring bread, you don't have calories. You're going to die. 
oops, there's 13 of them, and they don't have enough bread. They had just one loaf, and it's not a big loaf that you get from, you know, Jerosh or something like that. It's a cracker, something similar to what you saw on the plate this morning. While they're thinking about the fact that they only had one loaf with them in the boat, Jesus cautions them, verse 15, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now here's Jesus trying to still massage the truth that he was trying to get them to see when he was multiplying the bread. So Jesus is bringing them back to the topic of bread to try to get them to understand what's going on here. And using the analogy of bread, he's saying, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. What's, what's leaven? Leaven is the yeast that makes dough rise. Like the bread that we just had this morning didn't have any in it. But if you put in a little bit, it causes the whole loaf to rise, right? So he's using it, as the Bible often does, of the, of the, the foreign quality that messes up the whole batch. In other words, what the hang-up is for the Pharisees and the hang, what the hang-up is for, the, for Herod, that could be your hang-up. Don't let it be your hang-up. Don't let it invade and infiltrate your faith and destroy it. It's the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. In Matthew and in Luke, we learn that Jesus specifically says the teaching of the Pharisees and the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. But in Mark, he compares the Pharisees with Herod. Now, what do the Pharisees have in common with Herod? Only one thing, they didn't believe Jesus. That's it. That's what they had in common. So the reasons why the Pharisees were hypocrites wasn't because they loved religion. There's nothing wrong with religion. It's religion without Christ that's messed up. They didn't want Christ. They wanted religion without Christ. Herod wanted power without Christ. They don't believe him. They don't follow him. They reject him. That's the leaven. How did the disciples respond to this profound lesson from Jesus? Verse 16, And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Still missing it. And Jesus, in verse 17, aware of this, I mean, it's not like they're, they're on a yacht and they're on some other end. He, they're right there on top of each other, rowing. Yeah, he hears their conversation. They're, they're there together. And he talks about the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They're like, yeah. Thomas, why don't you bring more bread? That's messed up, man. I'm hungry. Right? Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. This is like a, a dad with little kids, right? You're asking the question, and then you have to say, it's not a rhetorical question, answer me. 12. He's like, he's going in. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand that this isn't about bread, that this isn't about food, it's not about calories, that the bread points to something else? 
that I'm able to satisfy hunger, that when I'm moved with compassion about these crowds, it's not just to feed them for the moment. It's because people are eternally lost. They're eternally lost. They're starved to death. And that starvation is an eternal death. But I can supply them with what they need for eternal satisfaction. Overboard. Baskets left over. That's how I satisfy. I am the fulfillment of Psalm 23. If the Lord is my shepherd, I shall want for nothing. I am Psalm 23. That's what you don't get. They're probably still thinking about how they're going to split that loaf. Do you not yet understand? They don't understand. And what Mark is trying to communicate is that the reason they don't understand is not because Jesus hasn't given them an appropriate illustration. It's not because Jesus hasn't proved his power in front of them. It's not because Jesus is really bad at explaining himself. It's not because Jesus doesn't know what to say next. He is the perfect communicator. He backs up everything he communicates with parables that we are, scholars are getting PhDs in for 2,000 years. 2,000 years later, you can still get a PhD in dissecting Jesus' tremendous parables. And they're at the source. They get it at the source. He's doing miracles in front of them. They're getting all kinds of signs. And they still don't get it. So what gives? Do they need better signs, better argument, better parables, better teaching? More frequent exposure to the truth? No. You know why? Because they're blind. And only one thing can solve blindness. And that's why Mark gives you the next paragraph. He's the only one that gives you this episode. They came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man. And begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand. And led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes. And laid his hands on him. He asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I I see people. But they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes. His sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. The reason why he pulled him out of the village was to do this in private and not cause a big stir. But he's doing this to illustrate something to the disciples that the disciples keep missing. Don't you see? Do you have eyes and and you're unable to see? Hey Jesus, there's a blind guy here. Wow, this is perfect. Come here. Come here. Pulls the blind guy aside. The disciples are with him. Heals the blind guy in front of the disciples. Demonstrating the reason why you have eyes and can't see is because those eyes are blind. Not your physical eyes, but the eyes of your heart. Your hearts are too hard to accept the truth that it's, it's clear cognitively. You understand it. You can understand it at an academic level. You, it's not like you don't understand what Jesus is saying, but it doesn't click for you. You can't apply faith to him because you haven't been given sight yet. Mark puts this episode right there so you can see that Jesus is not going on about physical blindness. 
It's not that he doesn't care about it, but he's using it as an analogy to point to spiritual blindness, which is the problem of the Pharisees and the problem of the disciples. Our only hope of seeing Jesus as the answer is if God grants it by giving you sight. Instead of figuring out which sermons to burn on the next CD to give to that loved one, instead of going, maybe if we got a cooler invite, church invite or something, not that those things are worthless, but we need to be on our knees because God has to go like that. That's the only way any of us see Christ. God went like that and took this veil from your eyes. The only hope we have of seeing Jesus, any of us, is if God grants us sight. Now we might say, man, if that's the case, then my own blindness is not my own fault. I can't see Jesus unless God gives me the sight to see Jesus. I don't see Jesus. I guess God doesn't want me to see him because he doesn't give me the sight, so I'm off the hook. You ain't off the hook. If you look at this passage, Jesus asked the disciples eight questions. In a row, bang, 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 driving home the point. I can't believe you don't see it yet. Why are you discussing the fact that there's no bread? First one. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Second one. Are your hearts hardened? Third one. Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? That's four. And do you not remember? There's five. When I broke the loaves, how many pieces were left over? How many baskets? When I broke the loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets? So he's asking these questions going, how do you not see it yet? You're supposed to see it, and you can't see it. Jesus doesn't go, ha, I know you're not able to see it. It's not your fault, but eventually I'm going to give you the sight to see it. It is their fault because we love our blindness. We learn from the Bible that Those who are lost in darkness love the darkness because the darkness covers up all their junk. Somebody flicks on the light, it hurts. We have a willful blindness. It's it's not just a blindness that we wish we could do something about. We don't want anything done about it because we're comfortable in our blindness. We like our blindness. Our blindness gives us an excuse to live however we want to live. And we don't want light We don't want sight. And the reason why the Pharisees are so vindictive against Jesus is because they want to kill him. They want to kill this one that's upending their darkness. This light that's breaking in, they want to stamp it out so they could stay in the dark. So our darkness is our fault. Our blindness is our fault. Even though we're unable to make ourselves see, we don't want to see. So God has to step in and do something big if anyone's ever going to see. And if we have any hope for our loved ones that don't know the Lord, it's prayer. It's the Father stepping in and removing a veil. It's not one more verse, one more book, one more conversation. Continue having those. But if God doesn't do a work in them, they won't see. Here's some hope. Verse 27. These Ignorant, blind, hardened, obdurate, obstinate, stubborn, 
whatever word you want to put in there, disciples, there's finally some hope for them. And Jesus went on with the disciples to the village, villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, um, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, you know, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. When Jesus gives a charge to not tell anyone about him, he's usually giving it to somebody who has, his eyes have been opened. The demoniac who doesn't have the demons anymore and he can't shut up about Jesus. The guy that's been healed and he wants to tell everybody the source of healing. The one who's the answer and Jesus has to tell them, shh. And this is the, this is the time where he has to tell the disciples, shh, because they're starting to get it now. They don't fully get it yet. But they're starting to get it. They're starting to see. You ever wonder if you've read that story before about the blind man and the healing? All these other healings, Jesus is like, snap, you can see. Like, spoken, you can walk. Right? Touch, disease is gone. Touch, dead girl is alive. And this one is sequential. He's got the spit and the eyes, and then he can kind of see like trees walking. I don't know if that means people are stretched out, blurry. And then Jesus goes in again, touches him again, and then now he can see. Well, what's the purpose of that? Jesus losing it a little bit? A little rusty? Well, we know that's not the, the answer. Why is that happening? I think because Jesus is demonstrating to the disciples, this is you. You're going to get it a little bit now, and then eventually you're fully going to get it. At the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, they get it. Right now, the veil is kind of being pulled back a little bit. Now, that doesn't mean that someone gets saved gradually. It simply means that uh, when someone is stuck in unbelief, that unbelief can morph and change over time before that moment when they fully get it. It can go to antagonistic disbelief. I don't care about God. I don't want to go to church. Mention God and I'm going to cuss at you. It can move from there to kind of a, look, I'm just a skeptic. I just don't get it. I don't hate you guys. I just, I don't understand it. From there, it could move to questioning. Uh, Let me learn a little bit more. Let me investigate this a little bit more because this is really starting to bother me. And to maybe a, a phase where you still don't get it yet, but you're real positive about it. Some people go through all those phases in one moment. Some people, that phase is a year or two years. Who knows? The point that Jesus is making to the disciples is be wary of that leaven of unbelief that can sneak in there and wreck this whole path for you. But the work that I'm going to do in your life is to unveil your eyes so that you can see. We know that for a fact because in Matthew, when Matthew records this confession of Peter, as soon as Peter says, you are the Christ, Jesus tells Peter, you are blessed because the Father revealed that to you. You didn't figure that out. You didn't do your homework and put two and two together. The Father revealed it to you, and that's the only reason why you know. Now, you might go, man, at first I was thinking, if Mark wanted us to understand that, why didn't Mark put that in there, Mark? Right? Why didn't you put that in there? Just put, as soon as Peter says, you are the Christ, right before verse 30, just do another little verse right there, man, another line. It ain't that much ink. Just put, just put, that little line where, where Jesus says, the Father gave that to you. The Father revealed that to you. And then I realized, Mark did. In the healing of the blind man. 
That's Mark communicating to you that that's what it takes for a disciple to see, for a Pharisee to see, for anyone to see. That's what it takes. It takes the Father making your eyes able to see the truth. So in the breaking of the bread, Jesus communicates that he is satisfaction. He is what people need for satisfaction. And in the healing of the blind man, Jesus is demonstrating, I know you can't see the significance of the bread. I know no matter how, to- how many times I talk about it with you in the boat while we're rowing, you still can't figure it out. You're more concerned with your next meal, and you're not concerned with your eternal meal. You haven't figured out yet who I really am. I don't, I've walked on water, calmed the water. You still don't understand who I am. I know that's the case, but now I'm demonstrating to you that you're going to see it because I'm going to touch you and you're going to see. What hope do any of us have that any of our loved ones can see the gospel truth? Jesus Christ died and rose again so that we can have eternal life. What is it going to take for that to click? What it's going to take is God doing a miracle in their lives. And if you're like me, it's easy to spend more time trying to think, what can we do, what can we do to convince them than we do spending time on our knees talking to the only one that can do it. If you're in here this morning, you're not sure you see, you have questions, we want to invite you, man, grab coffee with us, talk with us, ask your questions. There, there are no questions that are out of bounds or whatever. I mean, if they're sincere questions, we want to walk you through this journey. But if you're in here this morning, your heart breaks for someone in your life that doesn't know yet, don't lose hope. The only reason why you see is God did something amazing in you. Pray for that to happen in that person. We should spend more time in concerted effort, praying that God would do that because that's what it takes. It's never more evidence. It's never just one more miracle. That's not what it takes. What it takes is the conviction that this is true and that conviction can only come from the work of Jesus unblinding our eyes. Let's pray.